At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. It's great to be uh, in a position to open God's word with you. It's a privilege. And so I want to start with a word of prayer. So pray with me, please. Almighty God, you are king of all creation. And God, I'm reminded of your greatness in what we just sang, that you are indeed great. Not only because of what you've done, but because of who you indeed are. God, you're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our worship every day, every minute, every second. But God, we know what your word says is true. That we are prone to wander. We're prone to leave you. And so, Father, we humbly approach you now because we need you. We desire to know your ways. We desire to know the God of our salvation deeply and intimately, Father. And as we open your word, God, I pray that you would give us what we need to see you and see your beauty and savor the picture you provide in our minds by the Spirit. God, rid us of every single counterfeit image of your greatness. Convict us, God, of any false picture that we've bought into and rid it from our minds now in this moment by the Spirit. We pray to know your truth, Father, and we pray to see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a question for all of you. What is your dream destination? Right? What is the city that you long to visit the most? Now, as you are thinking, I want to imagine, and I'm going to kind of just put out some things there, some factors that I think that you might be weighing. Things like maybe where the best museums are, where the richest culture, the most storied history is. Maybe it's where the most renowned restaurants are. Your middle name is Foodie, right? And you're looking for the next best meal. Maybe not at all. No one's saying anything. Okay, so maybe it's shopping you're after, right? That's what drives your choice. You're looking for the shops and these unique things you can purchase. Maybe none of that. Maybe it's the beach. You're just looking for some white sand and comfortable water, fun in the sun. Perhaps you're in search of the best landscapes. You are an outdoors person. You want to explore as much as possible something new. One person. (laughs) Depending on who you ask, the list of the best cities in the world typically includes places like London. And Paris, well, maybe not so much nowadays. If you know, you know. Perhaps New York, Los Angeles, maybe Rome. Maybe somewhere in the tropics, maybe somewhere in the Far East, in the Orient. And despite the obvious differences that you and I may be able to list in the choices of the dream destination we choose, there's one quality common to all of them. Do you know what it is? 
It's interactive. You can join in. Novelty, right? We love new things. You love new things. I love new things. We love to explore new places, right? We, we desire to go and seek new things and see them up close with our eyes in person. You might say, whoa, whoa hold on a second. Pump your brakes, Kevin. You don't know me at all. You have no idea what I long for. Oh, but I do. <laughs> I do. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 11, it says, God has put eternity into man's heart. See, deep down, every single one of you, myself, everyone listening along with us, we have a God-given awareness that there's more to this life than what we can touch, what we can see, what we can feel. To put it another way, we all have a hunger for eternity. And God put it there. Right? You and I, we desire more than what this experience we call life can give us. We desire what is new. We desire what is eternal. And eternal things are fresh and they're new. And today we're continuing our series entitled All Things New. And we've been navigating these last four chapters of the book of Revelation. And last week we read the words of the loud voice that John heard coming from the throne, saying, Behold, I am making all things new. God gave John a vision of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, the holy city, he called it. But all we got was a passing mention of this city. We didn't hear much about it, but today we get to see it up close. Almost as if we're in person with John. That's how vivid this description is going to seem. And it's a picture that should lead us to long for and live to enter the city of God. And this city is new. It's extravagant. It's saturated in beauty, the likes of which you and I have never seen. Not in this life, anyway. It's imperishable. It's eternal. So let's dive in. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 21. We'll be in verse 9. We'll start there. Chapter 21, verse 9. John writes this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates... On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. 
The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Let's stop there for a moment. This is kind of something of a dream here. I mean, there's an astonishing and impressive splendor that's really undeniable as we read through what John is seeing here. It's undeniable. And this is heaven, folks. Absolutely. This is heaven. This is inspiring. It's astonishing. It's unbelievable to John's eyes. And he's grasping at the best words he can to describe what he's seeing. And ironically, there's no angels on clouds plucking harps. That was a cue to laugh. I'll, I'll have to ask for it today. No St. Peter on, at the pearly gates standing there with his clipboard saying, oh, I don't know you, you're not here. So that was another joke. I guess I'll just keep trying. I'll stick to the concrete stuff. See, some take this as a literal description of a literal city. And while others see it as a representation of the life in heaven of the Lamb's redeemed people. And based on how our text starts, it would seem the latter of those two is the preferred interpretation. Right? The holy city is used as a symbol of the bride of the Lamb. And we got a hint of that last week when Pastor Rob led us through chapter 21, verse 2. It says that the holy city was prepared and adorned for her husband. And so in our text today, John gives us three real elements about this holy city or this bride that should motivate every single one of us to want to be a part of it, most of all. And the first is the layout of the city. Look back at verse 11. It says that the holy city has the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. There is an unmatched beauty here. It's rare. It's exquisite. Unlike anything you've ever seen in this life. The only ones who are seeing this right now are the ones who have already perished, believers in Christ, who are now in God's presence. You and I, we've never seen anything like this. This is the kind of beauty that God is working in us right now. It's now, but not fully realized yet. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God is doing something in all of us that are in Christ. He is making us beautiful. This is, John sees here the end result of what you and I know as sanctification. God is preparing all of his redeemed people as a beautiful bride, having his glory that shines with an unmatched radiance. All of it fit for his very presence when Jesus returns. But that isn't all. 
John continues, verses 12 to 14, give us a picture of a grand and secure city. It's got an enormous wall, multiple gates, all guarded by angels. These images are showing us that the believer's life in heaven has been secured by God in Christ. It's invulnerable to attack of any kind. Evil's gone. It's been done away with. No more, what if this happens? What if that happens? The bride is untouchable by evil. But notice also the gates. They have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the wall has 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles. See, John sees a unity between the believers in the Old Testament and the believers in the New Testament. The very people that you and I read of when we pick up God's word. Abraham. Moses. Peter. James. John. They are your brothers in Christ. You will see them again. Ruth, Hannah, Deborah, Mary, Elizabeth, all of these stories that capture our hearts because of the power of God, we will see these people again. There's a glory that awaits us. Verses 15 to 21, John moves into the holiness of God's perfected people. Look at, look at this its length and width and height are equal. This city is described as a perfect cube. But this is really the description of the holy of holies. The inner sanctuary of Israel's temple. But all of these dimensions that are being mentioned, these, these rare jewels and all of them in one place, all of them are symbols for the perfect holiness and the absolute pure beauty that will be characteristic of God's people. When he makes the not yet now. When he makes it a reality for all of us. See, and with this vision, John, he's reaching into the souls of us. He's reaching in for that eternal longing. He's grabbing hold of it. And he's showing us that the lamb loves his bride. He cares for her. He supplies her with everything she needs. He makes her new. He honors her. He makes her safe. He adorns her with an unmatched beauty. Do you remember that city that I asked you where you long to visit the most? See, there's another quality other than novelty that all of our dream destinations have in common. I wonder if you know what that one is. They're all dying. Every single one of our dream destinations, they're all in a state of decay. See, some more than others have pollution and crime and waste. Some more than others have violence and dysfunction and so on. Some have all of that. They're imperfect. They're perishable. They're temporary. And the newness that you and I think they may have, the newness that you and I may think anything that this world has to offer is temporary at best. 
And yet we continually try to satisfy that eternal longing in all of us with what is temporary. When that longing requires an eternal answer. Pastor Robs told us last week that we get so enamored with the here and now. All of the things in this life, on this earth, that do have beauty. And let's be honest, they do have beauty. But it's a counterfeit beauty. And we buy into those things, we end up having no appetite to persevere in our faith. And see, that's the evidence for trying to satisfy that eternal longing in you with something that's perishable. This faith thing, I don't want to do it anymore. It's too hard. I settle for what the here and now has to offer. See, some of us, we are dabbling in the here and now. We're kind of getting really comfy with the beauty of this life. And we're satisfied by it. Let me charge you with the words of the Apostle Paul and take them to heart. He says this in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you see the charge he's given you, brothers and sisters? Any beauty in this life, on this earth, from this world, is counterfeit. Let's go back to our text. Verse 22, chapter 21. Let's pick it up where John continues. He said, And I saw no temple city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written. In the Lamb's book of life. Let's stop there. This vision John has, it began with a perfect and beautiful layout of a city. Or the perfect and beautiful appearance of the bride of Christ. The church. But see, now we're seeing the perfect light of the city. The glory that God is going to adorn his church with. And as John continues with his vision, now we see that God actually takes up residence with his people. But also, I wonder if you notice there's something that's not there. Something that was there all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Something for God's people. A temple. The temple is not there and there's no need for it because God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, they are the temple. For his people. We will gather in God's presence and be with him face to face. And now that in this vision that God's presence is among his people, his glory spreads through everything. It touches everything, it impacts everything and everyone. There's no need for any other light like the sun or the moon. The divine light of God is so spectacular. 
so sufficient that every other light is just irrelevant. My family and I, we did a road trip out west about seven years ago. And um, we visited Yellowstone, the Tetons, Rocky Mountain National Park. We saw some parts of Utah. It was absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, some parts of the, the western United States with the mountains, it really provides us with such vivid colors we can see in the mountains. Right? And the way the, the sun maybe pierces through clouds, it lights up the landscape, it lights up the mountains, it, it shows all the colors of creation. The way it pierces through the clouds, it lights up and seems to touch every single thing once it's in the sky. And it impacts everything that it touches. This light that John sees is like that, but only so much more because it's the light of the gospel. Look at verse 24. Look at what this light accomplishes. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. See, the light of the gospel is what brings people back into relationship with God. It's what ushers them back to his presence. And this is the ultimate promise of the gospel. That by being reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone, at the end of time, we will dwell with God. That's a good place to say amen. We will dwell in his very presence, and his glory will permeate everything. It will shine on us, and we will shine it forth into everything else. It's, what we like, it's like what we read last week in verse 3 of chapter 21. He will dwell with his people, and he shall be with them as their God. Amen. But look at verse 25. Look at the openness of this city. Gates are wide open. They're never shut, and there's no night. There's no need for security because God is their security. God is your security. No more what if, no more fear, oh, this could happen, that. It's secure, permanently, forever. And the gates are open to all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And strangely and ironically, there's no emphasis on language or lands from which people come. No emphasis on wealth or wit that people may be able to bring and prop up as important. No emphasis on power or performance that we may able, be able to just put out there as our resume, our pedigree. It's only by the light. It's only by the light of the gospel that people come to God. But then verse 27 kind of stands out, doesn't it? It stands out as an exhortation to all of us. Because what John describes is so pure, so true, so perfect, that nothing or no one unclean or detestable or false will be able to be a part of this. And that demands that you and I consider if our very names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And let me stop here and say something really important. You hear us talk about belonging to Jesus a lot here. That's never going to change. And if you have confessed of your sin, if you've turned from your life and turned to Jesus and repent of your sin and even embrace what John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? If you embrace repentance as a lifestyle, something that you know you need Jesus daily, you need the grace of God daily, minute by minute, and you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, 
that his death and his sacrifice is the only thing that you can rely on, then yes, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus promised that my sheep, they hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. But perhaps that doesn't describe you. Perhaps you're unsure. You've been checking Jesus out. You've been reading about him and you're still trying to sort through some things. That's okay. He still welcomes you. And the invitation is still open to you to come to him in sincere faith. But there is something you need to do. Humble yourself. Admit that your life without him is of no importance. And that he is of the utmost importance. Turn to him in sincere faith. Repent of your sin and come to him. He's ready to accept you. He's ready to make you new. Because what from John sees here, we know there is a compelling beauty, a compelling perfection, a compelling light that awaits you. But there is perhaps something else that awaits you that might be the most spectacular. And that's the life of the city. Join me in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. John continues with this vision. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen, indeed. This vision just seems to get more astonishing every single word and sentence we read. And in what John describes now, it's not about you, but it's really difficult not to think of the Garden of Eden before sin entered humanity. See, there's a remarkable parallel here in the closing chapters of the Bible with the opening chapters of the Bible. Right? You know the story. The first chapter of the Bible describes how God made the world. He made everything in it, all of creation. And he even made us in his own image. And now here in the last, it shows how he will make it new. See, John sees a river, but it's not just any river. The focus here is on the life that this river provides, but also the source from which this life comes. It flows directly from the throne of God and the Lamb. In fact, the throne of God and the Lamb, that's the focal point of everything John describes here. It's central to the city. In the original garden paradise, it was cursed by sin. Cursed because of Adam and Eve's choice to ignore God's word, to ignore his charge, his instruction, to be his representatives. And it resulted... In sickness and pain 
and death and fear and anxiety and, and all kinds of evil. It needed to be made new. And in this renewed paradise that we read of, God himself is present. And so therefore, healing abounds. Grace abounds. Life abounds. Because evil's gone. Sickness is gone. It's never coming back when this not yet becomes now. All things made new and right and beautiful. And John repeats himself that night's going to be gone There's no need for light. He's overwhelmed by what he sees. It's astonishing. He's grasping at words for describing what he sees. But there's something else that should astonish each and every one of us here. Something that should reach into your soul and grab a hold of that eternal longing in you. And it's in verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Oh, church, Relational life with God will abound when he makes all things new. You and I will see him face to face. And this should stun all of us because as you read through the Bible, the most remarkable thing is that no one can see God's face and live. No one. Moses asked and God said, you can't and live. And so he showed him his back. It was all Moses was allowed to see, and yet Moses' face shined with a, with a glory that he had to veil in front of the Israelites. But see, John sees believers seeing God face to face, up close, personal, and that they belong to him. See, this eternal longing at that moment is eternally satisfied. And I just wonder... Is this the place that you long to be most? Is that your dream destination? Amen, indeed. You know, I think as I read this revelation of what John sees, I'm kind of convicted a little bit. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest with you, I think most of our thoughts about heaven are wonderful and they're good. But I think most often we focus on the perks of heaven rather than the person. We focus on the fact that there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness or disease, no more anxiety or fear, no more guilt or depression. We, we embrace the idea that we're going to see loved ones again, and all of that is true. All of it's true. But it's true because of the person that's there. Without a shadow of a doubt, the perk of heaven is the person whose face we shall see. An anonymous author expresses it like this. The light of heaven is the face of Jesus. The joy of heaven is the presence of Jesus. The melody of heaven is the name of Jesus. The employment of heaven is the service of Jesus. The harmony of heaven is the praise of Jesus. The theme of heaven is the work of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.